0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. that was beautiful. Alright, good morning. If you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 9 is where we left off last week and where we continue in our journey through the greatest letter ever written the letter of paul to the romans i have this burden if you're if you're here for the first time this morning you're jumping in the middle of a train that is moving about 120 miles an hour down the track so i hope you signed an insurance waiver before you entered the sanctuary no i'm i'm kidding a bit but we're spending these months past year and a half took a little break over the summer and for however long it takes to go through just work through chapter by chapter verse by verse the letter to the we find ourselves in the middle of one of the most deep and beautiful and God glorifying passages in all of the Bible so I pray that God would help us understand it well And that he would give us his grace. Now, we're going to read verses 6 through 13. We left off at verse 5 last week. And I think it's going to take us two weeks to get through this little portion. So uh, we're going to continue that actually in two weeks. Next week, Jennifer and I and our family will be in Atlanta. Our long lost son, who has been in China for the past year, will be coming home next Sunday morning. And so we're picking him up as he's flying in from Beijing. And we're looking forward to, to seeing him. Um, and so Robert will preach a, a standalone message next week, and then we'll be back into Romans chapter 9 the following week. So let me do this. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us, and then let's, let's open our Bibles, have your Bible open on your lap. There's nothing better. It's good for you to see the text. We're going to have it on the screen just for your convenience, but, but I want you to see the ink on your page. And if you don't have a Bible, you can use one of the ones that you can find in the rack in front of you, if you don't own a Bible, keep that Bible as our gift to you. If, you're, if you already have a Bible and you're just upgrading, come on now, buy your own. But if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that Bible. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us before, before we get into this text. Father, thank you for this gathering of your people and the friends here, some of whom may not yet know you. There will never be another August 12th, 2018. There will never be a moment just like this moment that we are in. You have ordained all of our days before one of them comes into being. This day is the day that you have made and we are commanded to rejoice in it. And you have specific plans and purposes for everybody in this room for this day, for this text, for this worship gathering. Pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that you would stir our affections for Jesus, that we would see him more clearly, that we would fall more in love with him, that, that we would live more passionately for him, that he would be more all satisfying to us. For my friends in this room who do not yet know you, I pray, God, that you would do what only you can do, that you would cause them to pass from spiritual blindness to sight, from spiritual death to life, from an unbelieving heart to a believing heart. Lord, I'm asking you to do a miracle, the miracle of new birth, salvation, as we stare at your word and we ponder the glory of God and salvation in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we leave this room in a better posture to worship you this week. And we pray all these things for our sister churches in the city. We thank you, Lord, for the body of Christ in Columbus. Thank you for Calvary Baptist and St. Andrew's Presbyterian and Evangel Temple and for the downtown churches. Lord bless them, I pray. And in particular, as Tyler prayed, we do pray for our sister church, church plant midtree. Today is their official launch, public Sunday, Lord. Bless them, I pray. Bless Will. Thank you for them. Help us now as we look at this text. Help me explain it well. And I need your help to do that. Blot out every distraction. Help us to resist doing silly things like checking Instagram while the word of God is preached. Help us to have patience with fidgety children and with one another. God, do what only you can do this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans 9, starting in verse 6. I will explain the context as we go, so if you are jumping in with us for the first time today... Again, you're jumping into a train that's already moving. I think you'll be able to understand. You're going to have to hold on. You're going to have to pay attention. But you, you can do it. I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can explain it well. we'll you'll you be the judge of that here in about 45 minutes. But you can understand this text. So let me read it. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel... shall have a son, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger." As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, before we pick apart verses 6-13, and I think we're only going to get halfway through Lord willing this morning, we need to remember what Paul is, is responding to here in Romans chapter 9. So remember last week we we spent some time just reviewing because it was our first Sunday back in Romans after a summer break. And we looked at really the the whole progression of Paul's logic and thought in his message up to this point. And we looked really at a a kind of survey of of chapters 1 through 8 where Paul is building this argument that all people are guilty before God. Whether they are the religious Jew, God's chosen people in the Old Testament, or the pagan Gentiles, they too, all of us... All of us are guilty before God, and none of us, because we are guilty, can do anything about our separation from God. That is the state of all humanity. The foot of the cross is level, and the good news of the gospel that is the response to the bad news of the human predicament is that God has put his son Jesus forward as a wrath Absorbing sacrifice. The biblical word is propitiation in Romans chapter 3, where Jesus, God in the flesh, the eternal Son of God, fully God, fully man, becomes a man, bears the image of God. He is, the, he is God in the flesh, and He bears our sin on the cross. He endures temptation, defeats it, unlike any other human being who has ever lived. He is completely obedient to God and lays down his perfect life as a sacrifice on the cross to absorb God's righteous wrath that should have been ours. And he rises again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. And now those who have faith in what Jesus has done will be reconciled to God. That's the message, really, of Romans up to this point. And Romans chapter 8 is this kind of high point. It's like the tip of Mount Everest in the highest mountain peak of Scripture where Paul says that the Christian life, because of what Christ has done, because of the gift of faith that God has given to those whom he saves, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And even though they will go through various trials, even those trials midway through Romans 8, verses 18 through 25, God says through Paul that they are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. And oh, by the way, speaking of that glory towards the end of Romans chapter 8, Paul says that that glory that awaits you is so certain that he can speak of it in the past tense. He says you are not only justified, you are already glorified, even if you don't feel like it, Christian. And then he says that there is no separation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the the beautiful chapter 8 begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. In other words, here's the great promise of the gospel to those who believe is that God will surely bring all of his people home. He won't lose one of them. And even though they may may be buffeted by trials in this life, He will bring us safely home. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And Paul says, I am certain that neither death nor life shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But now, as he's speaking to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 9, he's anticipating that they may have this objection that, Paul, if you're saying that God has promised this to me, that these things that I'm going through, and remember, the Roman Christians are staring at the increasing persecution of a hostile Roman Empire. In fact, in another decade or so, Nero, the emperor of Rome, is going to burn Christians live in the streets of Rome to light the streets of Rome. Severe persecution. And so they're wondering, is God faithful? And oh, by the way, as we read the Old Testament... We see how God had called to himself a people, Israel, and it seems like the vast majority of Israel has rejected Christ. In fact, that's the dilemma. I'm going to have it up on the screen. The dilemma that Paul is answering in Romans chapter 9 is the rejection of Christ by Israel. And the reason he is answering that objection is because our confidence, the Roman Christians that he is writing this letter to, their confidence hangs in the balance. As they stare at the history of redemption and they see that the vast majority of the people that God promised his salvation to in the Old Testament have rejected Christ, then has God's word failed? That's the issue. And that's the point that he takes up in verses five through one through five of Romans chapter nine. He he's basically, and we won't read it, but I'm just summarizing, he's saying that God gave his privileges to these people, and they have rejected it. And so the, the question is: has God failed? Because Israel, by and large, has rejected Christ. And here is Paul's response, and it's in verse six, and we got it up on the screen. God's word has not failed. That's Paul's answer to the objection that he's bringing up in verse 6. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And now I want you to see the flow of thought of Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. The rest of Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 is essentially Paul showing us how God's word has not failed. That's the point of these three chapters that we're going to look at. So the dilemma is Israel's rejection of Christ. The response that Paul has here, and it's all important for us to see what's going on in Romans 9, is verse 6, God's word has not failed. You can put that next thing up there, that's it. God's word has not failed. But the question is, how has it not failed? Paul's not just going to tell us that it's not failed. He's going to explain and interpret for us what the Old Testament is actually all about and what it means to be a Christian and believe in Christ. And so how does Paul say that the word of God has not failed? The first thing he says is that there is a physical Israel and a spiritual Israel. There's essentially two Israels is what Paul is saying. So so look again at Romans chapter 9. And he says it essentially three times in three verses there. So his contention, his response, is that God's word has not failed. In other words, God's not been unfaithful. He's called the people, and he will bring those people safely home. Because remember, that's essentially the message of Romans 8. Is God able to keep you, Roman Christian? Is God able to keep you, struggling American Christian? And as you look back on the Old Testament where it seems like maybe because most of Israel has rejected Christ, it didn't seem to work out then, will it work out for me now? And Paul is eager to show us that no, God's word has not failed. And here's his first answer to that. Because Israel, there are two Israels. All of physical Israel is not necessarily true spiritual Israel. And that's what he says in the second part of look at verse 6. He says... For not all, I need my glasses, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So he's saying that physical descent from Israel to be ethnically Jewish doesn't necessarily mean that you are truly Jewish. That's what Paul is saying in the second half of verse 6. He says it again in the first part of verse 7. He says, Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So do you see what Paul is doing? He's, he's introducing this truth that there is a physical Israel and there is a spiritual Israel. There's, a, there's a, an external sense in which somebody is physically born a Jew, But there's this spiritual sense in which somebody's actually truly a Jew. And look, he he says it a third time in in verse 8. He says, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Now, we're going to look here in just a second at that Old Testament text that he's quoting there. But again, he's essentially saying the same thing, that just because you were born a Jew doesn't mean that you're actually truly a Jew. And so Paul is saying, his first answer to the question, and he's setting us up for what he's going to get into in the second half of our paragraph that we're going to look at this week and next week, is that there have really always been two Israels. There's just been physical Israel that God created through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But just being born a Jew doesn't guarantee your standing with God. And God has not failed. Because he has called, he's created a spiritual Jew from within ethnic Israel. And so all of the promises that he's made to Israel in the Old Testament will be fulfilled in those people whom he calls in Christ through faith. Do you see the, the, the point? And I realize, you, oh, Brad, just give me three points so I can get through Thursday and let them all start by the same letter. It'd be helpful. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not dogging that type of preaching, sort of, but, but not really. I'm, I want you to see, you can't understand Romans 9 if you just want a little, a little chit-chat. This is really important logic. So Paul is saying, no, God has not failed because ethnic Israel... Physical Israel seemingly has rejected Christ, but within ethnic Israel there's this remnant whom God has not failed, and that's ultimately what the Old Testament was pointing to, true Israel who believes in the one true Jew who is Jesus. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but I want you to see that. That's Paul's answer to the question. At this point, is there's a physical Israel and a spiritual Israel. And his, his point is going to be that he will save all of spiritual Israel. And who is spiritual Israel? It's those who have faith in Christ. Here's just one application, friends. Nobody's saved because they're ethnically Jew. That's Paul's big point here. And, and likewise, nobody's saved just because they're born into a Christian home. You see that God doesn't save anybody because of national or spiritual heritage. He may use those things in His sovereign grace, but every person must believe themselves. And as we're going to see here, the belief that God works in a person's heart is all of grace and not by works. Now, we're not going to get into this today. We will eventually, maybe, as we summarize Romans chapter 9 in a few weeks. But this has massive, massive implications for how we understand just even Old Testament promises to Israel. Israel as a political entity that we know of now and how we understand who they are has massive implications for just how we understand how the Bible fits together. And when the Bible in the New Testament speaks about Israel, most of the time it's speaking about believing Israel, those who are in Christ. Israel as a nation, as a geopolitical nation, is not going to be saved by God merely because they are ethnically Jewish. They will only be saved because they, if they, will believe in Jesus. And when we get to the end of Romans chapter 11, I think we're going to see that God has a plan still for ethnic Israel. And that he is able to regraft in the branch that he has cut off. And so we're going to get to that. But for now, I want you to see that the inheritor of the Old Testament promises is those who believe by faith in the promise to Abraham, which we know ultimately is Christ. In other words, true Israel, those who are in Christ. Which then brings us to Paul's second response, is that how does he bring, how does he make this spiritual Israel, how does he bring them into existence? And that's, that's the second answer to his, his question of how he, he has not failed, and it's this, that God brings spiritual Israel into existence by his sovereign choice. God brings about spiritual Israel By his sovereign choice. And look at what he says there. He's now going to talk to us. He's going to take us back to the Old Testament. And he's going to show this to us. He says in verse 7, Not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Verse 9, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. Okay, so to understand what's going there on there in that text and to understand what Paul, the point that he's trying to make, let's go all the way back to the beginning of our Bibles, Genesis chapter 12. Let me walk you through the promises that God made to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. So Abraham, before his He's called Abraham, in the scriptures is this man named Abram, and he's wandering around in the desert. He is an unbeliever. We read later in Joshua that he's just a pagan, worshiping false gods. And God comes to Abraham, he initiates his relationship with Abraham, he chooses Abraham to be his man, not because of anything good in Abraham, but simply because of his grace, And he calls Abraham and he gives him this great promise, that promise that we just read about in Romans chapter 9. And this is what he says in Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. He says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you And him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed and so really what's going on in Genesis chapter 11 is just a continuation of what was going on in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell they were separated from God's presence they were excommunicated from the garden sin entered the human race and death spread to all of their children which is us we're now separated from God but God even on that darkest day in the garden preached the gospel to Adam and Eve and gave them hope for the seed that would come. And he said to Eve that through you will come a seed that will crush the serpent. And so we see in the early chapters of Genesis this promise of this seed, this offspring that will come through the woman who will finally defeat evil and the serpent. And here it's picked up. It's, it's Again, it's in shadow form. But in chapter 12, we see where Abraham is just this man. And he's promised offspring he's promised seed and he's promised blessing and this offspring that we'll see as we get to the new testament is ultimately christ so there's this child that is coming there's this nation that is coming there's this redeemer that is coming and it's coming through but at this point all we know is that abraham has been promised a nation and he's been given a wife and she's going to have lots and lots and lots of children the problem is at this point is that they're getting a little old so let's keep going. Let's keep reading what the progression of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15. This is, this is the progression, Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, "Oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. In other words, Sarah has not bore any children. How is this promise going to work? How are we going to have a bunch of children? When mama is not bearing any children, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, and Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir, so I'm going to do it some other way, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir, and he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and and the number of the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And we're like, yes, Abraham gets it. He's going he's to follow, he's going to have obedience, he's going he's to have faith in God, he's going to trust God, and God's going to bring something out of nothing, and, and it's going to work out, except Genesis 16 is in the Bible. And we won't take the time to read Genesis 16, but Abraham starts to get doubtful, And Sarah, his wife, conspires with him in their doubt. And they know that God has promised them a family. But (laughs) nothing seems to be happening. And so they conspire to get God out of the box that he has boxed himself in. God's in a pickle and he needs our help. That's essentially what Genesis 16 is saying. And so... Imagine this conversation. I realized it was a different culture. But Sarah says, take my mistress, Hagar, and her hand, my handmaiden, my servant, Hagar, and you have a child with her. And that will be the way that the promise is fulfilled through these man-made, God-helping ways. So that's what Genesis 16 is all about. God, you promise something. But it doesn't seem like it's happening, and so you need a little help. Human intervention. God needs it, right? Well, let's go to Genesis chapter 17, verses 15 through 21. And it says, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. And she shall become nations, kings of people shall come to her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael. Now, Ishmael's the, the son that was born from this, you know, getting God out of the pickle that he put himself in. Chapter 16, right? Ishmael is the son of Sarah's mistress, her handmaid, and Hagar. So this is, you know, Abraham and Sarah's human intervention to help God out. That's the fruit. Ishmael is the son that came from that man-made plan. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In other words, God, I know that you're promising me again that Sarah will have but, but come on, can't it just be Ishmael? Can't, can't, can't the way that Sarah and I have thought that this thing should work out... Can't we just go with plan B because it seems to be working out? God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But, verse 21 I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Remember, Abe is 100, and Sarah is 90. And so the story progresses. Chapter 18, verse 9. Then they said to him, There's these three men that have come to Abraham, and it's really kind of a a, a theophany, an appearance of some divine beings, I think really God speaking through these angelic beings. They said to him, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, this is Abraham speaking, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. So he's promising him again, he's reminding him. And listen to this, and Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him, Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, in case we had forgotten that, just one chapter. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, I mean, it's not all on her. Abe ain't got much going on either, right? After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Listen to verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. (laughs) Verse 15, I just love it. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's a great conversation with God <laughs> yeah you did go to Genesis chapter 21 Isaac is born to not an octogenarian what's a, what's somebody that's 90 or I mean he's a centurion I don't know a hundred years old he's born to a woman over the age of 90 and a dad who is a hundred. Isaac, God, fulfilled his promise. verse 12, now, there's a lot going on here that we won't get into. We preached through Genesis a couple years, but Abraham and Sarah now have this son Isaac who's this son of promise. And Sarah doesn't want this, this Ishmael, this son of her handmaid around to mess with the plans that she has for her son Isaac. And she says, get this mistress and this boy away from me. And take her away, and it was upsetting Abraham, but God comes to Abraham in Genesis 21, verse 12, and he says to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. And listen, he repeats it again, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And that's the quotation that we read about in Romans chapter nine. In other words, this child of the promise, this child of God-ordained means, where God needs no help bringing a nation where God needs no help creating something and bringing something about where there is nothing, that's the way that I'm going to bring and create a people. And so Israel becomes Israel not merely by flesh, but by God's sovereign providential will. God takes a woman who is barren and a man who is dried up and he brings life. Friends, that's the point that Paul is making back to Romans 9 now. That's the point. And what's in view here is Paul is saying, remember, let's remember the greater argument. The issue is, is God able to save a people and bring them safely home? Many of the people that God seemingly promised these things to in the Old Testament have not trusted in Christ. And so they will perish. And Paul is saying, wait a minute. All of those people, just because they were in the flesh, weren't truly the people of God. But the true true Israel is those who have faith in God. And the only way that they can have faith in God is for God to give them something where nothing exists. And friends, if you're a Christian, that's how you became a Christian. Not because you helped God out but because God created something where there was nothing. <laughs> you, you got to see this. This is what's in view. In Romans chapter 9 is, is responding to the objection that somebody may have after reading the glorious truth of Romans chapter 8. What's in view here is salvation. And Paul is saying that God is able to create Something out of nothing. That's the point. And all of this comes through Christ. Let me just do this. Go to to Galatians chapter 3 real quick and let me just show you how all of this comes about. Galatians chapter 3 and how God creates all of this, but he creates it ultimately through Christ. Galatians 3, starting in verse 7. Speaking again about who, 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 is, who are children of the promise. And I think that's just a, a, a biblical Pauline way of saying who, 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 who ultimately is reconciled to God and inherits salvation. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Nobody saved because they're ethnically jew nobody's saved because they grew up in crosspoint nobody's saved because their daddy's a preacher nobody's saved because their mama plays a piano nobody's saved because your daddy's a deacon or an elder you're only saved by faith through the sovereign gift of god know then that it is not those that know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of abraham and the scripture foreseeing Listen to this logic, verse 8, Galatians 3, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So in other words, true Jews are those who have faith in what Abraham was longing for, which we ultimately see is Christ. Skip down to verse 16 of, of Galatians chapter 3. This ties it all together. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So do you, I know this is a lot going on here. The train's moving fast, but come on, come on, come on. This, really, this, is, this is integral for you to understand the message of Romans. Do you see this? So God promises to redeem a people. In the garden, he says, I'm going to bring a seed through you, Eve, and that seed is going to crush the serpent's head. What does that mean at that time? We don't know. And then we see the flood, all bunch of crazy stuff happens. The world is wicked. God chooses one man, Abraham, and he says, I'm going to give you a seed. I'm going to give you a people. And through this people, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth and you must be obedient to really the rest of the Old Testament is God forming this people through Abraham. We just saw how he did it through Isaac through miraculous means and commanding these people that if you will obey me, this is important, if you will obey me, then you will dwell in my land. But the problem is None of God's people could really obey him. So, no true Jew can really obey God. And ultimately, we see, as we read in Galatians, that the only true, obedient, righteous Jew is Jesus. And so Jesus is the one true fulfillment of all of these promises. He's the only one who is worthy to receive all of those things because he's the only one who has fully obeyed God. And so all of these huge promises that the Old Testament are pointing to are ultimately pointing to and only fulfilled in Christ. And so Jesus becomes the inheritor of all of the blessings of God to his people because he's the truly only one obedient person. Do you see that? Jesus lived the life that you and I could never live. Who will stand before a holy God for us? Who can enter into his tabernacle? Who can go to the holy of holies? None of us. None of us can. And God has has orchestrated temporary measures of sacrifice in the Old Testament whereby we can see a picture of his holiness but those things are insufficient. Who can obey God perfectly? None of us. But Christ has come and he was the seed that was promised long ago, and he truly, finally, fully obeys God and then lays down his perfect obedience on the cross to absorb the wrath of God against our rebellion. And he extinguishes it, he satisfies it, he removes it, he propitiates it. He takes God's wrath and removes it as far as the east is from the west, rises again in victory, and now commands all those who by faith will believe in him to come to him. And God now gives all of the blessings of his promises of the obedience of Jesus to Christ. And now, do you see who Israel is? There was physical Israel, and now true Israel is Christ, and all those who have faith in Christ are grafted in and are part of Christ, who is the one true Jew. Do you see that? So now, God has not failed, because he's created a people And the shadow of the Old Testament of Israel ethnically was pointing to the spiritual reality of Christ who alone inherits through his obedience all that God promised and all those by faith, Jew and Gentile, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord who's in Christ gets all that God has and is reconciled to God forever. So do you see that? God is able... To make a people out of nothing by his sovereign choice. And it's going to get even more, more specific when we talk about Jacob and Esau next two weeks from now and God's purpose in his sovereign election. But we'll get to that. That's too much. If I tried to do that now, this train, which is teetering, would go off the rails. So let's conclude with this. What's the conclusion? The conclusion is is that God has not failed and he can be trusted. God has not failed and he can be trusted. God has always had a plan and it was to save Israel. But here in the New Testament when we find out who Israel truly is, Israel is not merely fleshly. That's just physical Israel. Nobody will be saved for that. Israel is ultimately Christ, and all those who are in Christ are true Israel. Now, again, for those of you that are very passionate about Israel, this is rocking your world a little bit right now. I understand that. We're going to get to the end of Romans chapter 11 and we're going to see that I think God has not done with ethnic Israel and He's going to regraft in the branch that He cut off, ethnic Israel, by their unbelief just because of His sovereign grace. But they're going to be saved not because they're Jews. Because they're in Christ who is the true Jew. You see that? And so the conclusion is that all of us must make now is that God has not failed and He can be saved trusted friends this should cause us to have just unshakable confidence in God do you see how much glo- more glorious this is friends I'm not speaking about a mere temporal confidence in God to make our temporary lives better or more comfortable that is a cheap grace name it and claim it temporary gospel and it's false there's something deeper than that there's something more eternal to that than that. And it is this unshakable foundation of Romans 8 that Romans 9 is resting on that those whom he has called, he will bring safely home. God will not lose any of his people. No matter what you're facing in this earth, God is able to bring about his will in your life. The womb of your heart may be barren, but God brings life from nothing. That's what he's saying to the Roman Christians about Abraham and Sarah that he's going to do through Isaac. The womb is barren. Wait, I'm bringing life. And if you're in Christ, know that God will fulfill all of his promises to you, not because there's anything good in you, but because you are in Christ and there's everything good in him. And friends, that goes way beyond a better job or or, or your kid being the best reader in the class, or getting a scholarship, or all these other little things we idolize. It goes so far into eternity that it never ends. So whether a cancer cell is right now wreaking havoc on your body, undetected, and will take your life in a year from now, nothing can separate you from the love of God because you are in Christ. And there is something better than another 40 years. It's to be with him forever. Who promised to his people to bring them safely home. And he will. That's what Romans 9 is about. And it gets better when we look at Jacob and Esau. But that's enough for now. I have to work on my conclusions. All I I know to say is I'm done. (laughs) Help me. Let's pray. God, help us. We're fragile, we're weak, we doubt. So many of us are living in Genesis 16. We're trying to get you out of the box. We don't really trust you. We think you need our help. God, lift us out of Genesis 16 where we're coming up with our little mistresses and our little handmaidens and we're trying to have our little Ishmael's And transport us into Genesis 21 where the Son is promised, where we are in Christ, where what you said you would do, you would do. Because Corinthians says that all your promises in Christ are yes and amen. God, bring us into that. Bring us into that, I pray. Lord, make Christ more satisfying. This is the way, Lord, that that not only doubt is broken, but sin, the chains are broken. Lord, make Jesus and life with him and rightness with you be the all-surpassing joy of our hearts and let it do a thousand things that we don't even need, we need done in our lives. As we behold the glory of God, may we become more like you. And this may have, Lord, may it have so many fruitful effects on our lives. But right now, the thing we need to do is we need to see our unshakable confidence in your promise to your people. And Lord, for my friends in this room who do not not know you, God, Nobody will be saved because of their morality or their good intentions. Nobody will be, who will stand before God and say, I was a pretty good guy. Lord, I pray that even as we've been looking at this text this morning, that you could help them see that their only hope is the perfect obedience and sacrificial death of the one true and only true Jew, Jesus, who died, who satisfied, who is your chosen one, and who died for all those that will trust in Him. Lord, would they turn from trusting in themselves, and would they put their hope in Christ now? Lord, if if that is you, do it now, I pray. Do it now. And then, Lord, may we spend the rest of our lives making much of this glorious gospel and enjoying you forever. In Jesus' name, Amen.